There's a group of people that every single one of you, every single one of us have a relationship with. We know them well. You've known them uh, since the day that you were born. Uh, it, it, it's someone that you're going to interact with in some way today. And, and any time that you know, someone uh, kind of threatens them, we all get defensive. Uh, anytime we, we don't know where they are, we, we want to know where they are. We want to do anything we can to find them. And, and you know their names. Um, it's, it's Washington, it's Lincoln, it's Jackson, maybe some Benjamins, right? It's our cash. Everyone has relationship with them. And, and for you Gen Zers, cash is this green thing. Uh, you might be thinking Venmo or Apple Pay. I've been known as the Apple Pay guy. I don't have time to tell that story. You can ask me later if you want to know. Uh, so I'm there too. But we all have relationships with money, right? Like you can't get around it. You have to spend money in some way. And so whether you're a spender or a saver or investor or, or whatever it is and how you relate to money, the reality is we all do relate to money. And just as we saw last week, James, as we're going through the book of James, he's kind of taking a mini-series near the end of his book. Last week, he went under the microscope of our time to be able to see ultimately what our time reveals about our heart and who is the king of our lives. And this week, he's going to do the same. He's going to wrap up this mini-series, and he's going to look under the microscope yet again at our money. And money is oftentimes a really touchy issue because people oftentimes have abused money in many ways. Uh, and, and because of that, we have a relationship where we maybe in, you've been in churches and they tend to overuse money, and it tends to really be about uh, building up one person or a ministry. Or perhaps as well that you've been in a church, or maybe this is where you are, where you really almost view money as an evil thing, as a wicked thing in and of itself, rather than that it, the love of money is the root of evil. And so we all come at money at different places. But we walk through books of the Bible primarily, and that's what we're doing. And the next passage today happens to be on money. And it's a passage, and it's a truth, and it's a topic that James brings up that really is needed. And it's needed maybe not for the reason that you think. It's not because God needs money, because God doesn't need any money. God is the God, as the Bible talks metaphorically, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns everything. The world is God's. So it's not that God needs your money. No, it's really a question as he looks under the microscope of where is your heart? Where is your allegiance? Who is your ultimate God? And as we look at how we view and how we spend money, it really gives a great picture into that. It's been said that money is perhaps the greatest barometer of your heart. That's why I think Jesus talked about it so much. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but Jesus talked about money more than any other topic in the Gospels. More than heaven and hell combined, in fact talked about money. And so if we want to be a church that is gospel-centered, which is what we have been from the get-go, then friends, we have to talk about what Jesus talks about. And again, it's, it's not this issue just really for this fact of, well, maybe God needs my money. No, that's really not the issue. The issue, in fact, is a discipleship issue. One of my pastor friends, Josh Miller in Charlottesville, he puts it this way, that if we go through the Bible and we teach all the truths, but then we avoid the topic of money because maybe it just feels a little icky, or a little, just too personal. Maybe we shouldn't talk about that. Then you're going to be like that dude at the gym. Everybody's seen this dude. He has just a jacked upper body, right? He can bench a thousand million pounds. And then he's just got chicken legs. And he just looks ridiculous. And friends, us and our discipleship, if we avoid certain topics just because we might not like them or because they feel uncomfortable, perhaps like money, then we too will be unbalanced in our discipleship and our following of Christ. 
And so that's why James, the brother of Jesus, he's going to look under the microscope today and see how our faith shapes how we spend our money. And ultimately, what we'll see is our big idea, that faith changes how you spend your money. Like we saw last week, it changes fundamentally how you spend your time, but as well, this week we'll see how it changes how you spend your money. So we're going to pray together and ask that Jesus would help us. Because again, we come, all of us, at different places with this topic. We need the Spirit's help. We need His help to be able to dive into this passage and ask Jesus, how am I spending my money? And ultimately, as we'll look in James chapter 5, we'll see four ways that unbelievers, those that have faith in something but not genuine saving faith in Jesus, how they spend their money. And I want to encourage you in this to look for the explicit and the implicit ways and ask the Spirit to show you in your heart how you might be falling to these, how you might be tempted to these different ways. And in this, as we begin, we're going to pray. And I want to pray for a missional partner. Specifically, I want to pray for Bethel Baptist Church and Pastor Doug Eccles. Um, for those that don't know, Bethel Baptist Church in Yorktown, they planted us ten and a half years ago. And as we planted this church, they were incredibly generous with resources and people and money. And friends, because of their generous blessing, that's really why we're here today. We want to thank God for that. And we want to ask that he would continue to bless that that they would be able to plant more churches than that we could too. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much uh, for Jesus and that he is the generous one. He is the one who models all of these things that we will see in this passage of how we, people of faith, people of the gospel, live out and spend our money. Father, I pray that you would empower me to be able to preach your word clearly, truthfully, and that your gospel would shine forth. Father, that the Bible would be open and Jesus would be the hero. No one else, nothing else but Jesus. I pray that sinners would be saved, that we the saints would be discipled and follow Christ as we repent. Father, I do pray for Bethel Baptist. Thank you so much for Pastor Eccles and his leadership and, and uh, Father, their church stepping out in faith and supporting our church so much, tremendously, uh, those ten and a half years ago. I pray that you would continue to bless them. Father, that they would be able to continue to do church planting work, that it would not be done with Catalyst Church, but Father, that more would happen. Father, the same with us. Father, thank you that through that we've been able to plant churches, that we would be able to plant more. Father, that we could support more churches, we could support more ministries, we could support more of those in need and advance your gospel. There in Yorktown and here in Newport News. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's go ahead and jump right into James chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 1 through 6, where we see, again, four ways that unbelievers and how they spend and how they view their money. He starts off in verse 1, he says, Come now. If you were with us last week, you know that that's exactly how James started the end of chapter 4, right? He says, come now, which is basically him saying, come on, come on, guys. Is this really what we're talking about? Last week, he was talking to believers, and here he's talking to unbelievers. You know because of what he says next. He says, come now, you rich. That's specifically who he's talking to. We'll get back to that in a second. He says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. It's a great happy way to start a sermon, by the way, of, hey, Weep and howl. If we just prayed now and left, what a depressing way to leave. But this is how he opens up. He says, hey, weep and howl because the miseries that are coming upon you. Here James is talking about, you'll see it throughout the passage, of the coming judgment for those who their ultimate allegiance, their ultimate king, their ultimate trust, their ultimate faith is not found in Jesus. It's found in something else. It's found in their money. That's who he's talking to. He's talking to the rich, specifically. Now, if you were with us at the beginning of our series, we talked about who are the rich when James is talking. It's those that can provide for themselves. 
It's those in that culture that had enough. They weren't worried about, would I eat again? And like culturally and contextually, then where do we fit into this passage? Culturally, contextually, in the sense of the world and of history, friends, we are the rich. We are the ones who James is ultimately talking about. The question is, are you an unbeliever or a believer? Because it's been said that we as Americans right now in 2023, we are richer than 99% of the world throughout history. And even those that are in the room, which there absolutely are right now, that are genuinely struggling financially, perhaps you. Friends, first of all, if that is you, know that our pastors want to love you and serve you and help you in any way you can. Please do not keep that a secret. We would love to partner with you in however we can. But friends, even those in our country that are struggling financially, still, are contextually, culturally, are the rich. And so James is talking about us. He's talking to us. So let's look then at what are these four ways that unbelievers, and then therefore four ways that believers, how they spend their money. He starts off in verse 2, and he's going to tell us the first way. It's that they hoard their money. That's how unbelievers spend their money and view their money. They hoard it. Verse 2. And three, he says, your riches have rotted. Your garments, your clothes, they're moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. They've rusted, which is interesting because gold and silver, they don't really rust and corrode. But he's using a metaphor here. He says, their corrosion will be evidenced against you, and they will eat your, eat your flesh like fire. He says, you have laid up treasure in the last days. The last days, those are talking about the days when Jesus came as a baby. That's what the author of Hebrews says. So we are living in the last days now. And here, James, he's hyperlinking back to, yet again, just as he does time and time and time again in the book of James, he's hyperlinking back to the Sermon on the Mount. You know this, where Jesus talks about where we lay up our treasure, right? Do you remember this in the, in the Sermon on the Mount? He talks about, are you laying up your treasure in heaven? Or are you laying up your treasure on earth? And that we as people, we should not, we should not lay it up on earth where, where moth will eat it away and all these things where it will decay. Here James is referring back to that. That we, as believers, we have to ask the question, how am I viewing and spending my money? Because unbelievers here, they're, they're just hoarding their money. They just want to keep it, and ultimately they have so much stuff that it goes bad. But like, ain't that us? Like, I don't think it's just me, but you know, I know for us, like, there's so many times that maybe it's in the pantry or in the fridge, I'll just forget that I have food, right? And like, oh yeah, I guess now that I'm smelling that, I guess it went bad. I guess I should get rid of that, right? Like, that is, that is the rich. That's who he's talking about. And you know that we're the rich, too. You know that we can be tempted by this hoarding because, like, we have Costco, right? We have Sam's Club. We have BJ's Wholesale, right? And I'm like, I ain't hating on those things. I went to Costco yesterday. It's great, right? You can get, like, an entire tub of ketchup, and you're just, you can just swim in it. It's wonderful. But, like, that's who James is talking to. He's talking to you and me because we have this temptation to just keep, to just hoard, to, to, and, and, and a lot of times we might like to mask it. Of, you know what, I'm just being a saver. You just never know. You never know. I just might need that box again. You know what, I might need this thing. I'm going to keep it. And then our homes, our dorms, our places, they just accumulate to the point where then we just forget we have this clothes. We just forget we have this or that. I'm totally victim. I am talking to myself right now. And this is how unbelievers live. Now, the response would be like, well, I guess we can't save anything, right? Like, I guess we got to get rid of everything. We should just live Spartan lives, have one pair of clothing, clothing, and that's it, right? But that's not what the Bible talks about either. 
I mean, if you look at the book of Proverbs, it talks about that the good man, the wise man, he saves. He saves abundantly. In fact, so much so, it says that a good man provides not just for his children, but his grandchildren. In order to do that, you have to save. And we have to be people that provide. So it's not talking against saving, but ultimately against hoarding. And why is that? Well, it's because of this principle that we see in Scripture. Jesus talks about it time and time again that we aren't hoarders, but we are stewards of what God has given us. That ultimately, it's not our things that we need to protect, that we need to keep no matter what, but it's trusting that, you know what, God is the one who gives us all things. He's the one that has provided these things, and I'm merely a steward of these things. Friends, this is what it looks like to be a believer, is to trust that our God will provide for us and not to hoard these things. That's why Randy Alcorn, he tells us this. He gives great instruction. Check it out. He says, Christians are God's delivery people through whom he does his giving to a needy world. Why did God give you things? To be able to give to others. We are conduits, not hoarders, but conduits of God's grace to others. Friends, we're stewards to be able to be that conduit of God's generosity to the world. To be able to be that conduit. So are you living in this way? Because this is what those who are marked by a faith in King Jesus live like. Because Jesus makes it clear in that Sermon on the Mount that we can't serve God and money. We can only serve one. So who are you serving? Here, James tells us that unbelievers, they hoard. But next, in verse 4, he tells us as well that they view money, they spend money selfishly. Check it out, verse 4. He says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. You didn't pay what they were owed. Maybe you didn't pay them at all. I don't know. He says, Those wages are crying out against you. You know that uh, famous short story, The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe, Poe, right? Like, and he murders this guy, and then the heartbeat just keeps, he keeps hearing it, and it's driving him crazy. Apparently, he stole that from James, because that's what James is talking about. That these rich business owners, that what did they do? They, they held back wages. Maybe they didn't pay them, or maybe they only paid them partially, and now they've just totally let them out to dry. But it's as if those wages are just crying out to them of, you didn't pay me. And he says, you want to know why that's eating away with you? You want to know why your conscience keeps speaking to you? It's because we are called not to live selfishly like you are. But instead, he says, business owners, unbelievers, he says, not selfishly, but selflessly, selflessly. He says this, he says, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. He says, here's the reality. It's not just those cries that you hear like in the back of your head of, you know what, I totally ripped that person off. You know, I, I did owe that bill. I did owe those taxes, and I never paid them. He says, those aren't the only cries that are crying out. He says, the cries of people who have been taken advantage of, those have not fell, fallen on deaf ears. And so if you're here, and you've been taken advantage of in some way, especially financially, that's what he's talking about, but really in any way, there really is some hope in the midst of that. It's that God actually hears your cries. God actually hears that you're crying out that, God, this person totally took advantage of me. And I really can't do anything about it. And so, God, I need justice to be served. Friends, what, what James tells us in James chapter 4, he tells us that 
Those cries have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the one who will rain down justice. He has heard, and he will bring down justice one day. He says we can hope in that. We can rest in that, that God will rain down in justice. But we as believers, we are left with this, that unbelievers, they view their money selfishly. Ultimately, as businessmen and women. So if you're here as a businessman or woman, there's just that question of, am I doing business honestly? Am I doing business as a believer, being whatever is due to others, being able to pay them and pay them honestly? But not just businessman and businesswoman, because the reality is that all of us do business in some way. Anytime you do swipe that card at Costco or, 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 or at Chick-fil-A or whatever it will be, we're doing business. So how is it that we know that we're living wisely and living as godly people as we do business? Well, Jesus, yet again, he gives us a wonderful insight into that. People actually trying to most likely trip him up. They ask him, hey, should we pay taxes? And what does Jesus say? He says, render or pay to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to the Lord what is the Lord's. What is he telling us there? He's telling us, first of all, that whatever is owed to someone, and specifically he's talking about taxes, you should pay them. And like, let's be honest, nobody likes taxes. Like, I mean, it's tax season, nobody's thrilled about this, right? But Jesus says, as we respect our authorities, we're ultimately picturing how we respect King Jesus as our ultimate authority. He says, do you pay taxes? Absolutely. So, first of all, there is a direct application for us literally right now. For some of you, you might be tempted to cheat on your taxes, to lie about something, to hold something back. Friends, we are, as believers are called to be countercultural, to not live as unbelievers, but instead to render to Caesar what is Caesar's. But as well, remember what Jesus said. He doesn't say just render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but as well to render to the Lord what is the Lord's. We are called to, again, remember that we are stewards, that Quite literally, everything is God's. And that we are to live as generous people. And as we give generously, we keep this in mind. One of my favorite uh, money experts, his name is Art Rayner. He's incredibly helpful. I would encourage you, if you're wanting to learn more about this topic of just money, how I order my finances, if you're needing help of how to do that, Art Rayner has some great resources, some great books, podcasts to check out. He says this. He says, sacrificially generous people. Right? In comparison to selfish people, in comparison to selfish people who maybe even give some. He says, sacrificially generous people, they don't ask, how much should I give? Right? They don't view, well, some of this money should be given. Right? Or some of this money uh, should, should be given away to God because, well, that's, that's kind of my God tax. Or you know, maybe I'm going to tip the pastor because he had an okay sermon today. No, he says, sacrificially generous people, they don't ask, how much should I give? No, their posture of their heart, no, is something else. It's, how much should I keep? How much do I actually need to be able to provide for my family? To be able to save what I need? To be able to save so I can help provide for my children, my grandchildren? But how much do I need to actually keep? It's this posture of that we don't live selfishly, but sacrificially. We we live generously. And we do this not out of legalism. Not so we'll hopefully earn God's favor. Hopefully we can pay enough. Hopefully we can just give enough and then God you'll forgive me. 
but it's out of the generosity and the selflessness of Christ himself. Because what is the gospel but a story of God's generosity? That we, selfish, sinful people, that me in my sin, I have sinned against an infinite God. And because of that, I have an infinite sin debt. I cannot work hard enough. I can't go to church enough. I can't give enough. I can't be good enough. I can't invite enough people to Easter. There's nothing I can do to forgive myself. And there's nothing you can do either. We have an infinite sin debt. Yet the story of the gospel is this wonderful business transaction that's scandalous. That Jesus came and lived the perfect sinless life in your place and died the death that you deserve. On the cross, he said, take your debt and put it on me. I will pay it, and I will pay it in full. And friends, he did on the cross. And the receipt that his payment was good, it was accepted, his swipe went through, is that he walked out of the grave. His resurrection is the receipt. That friends, the debt is paid. And anyone who repents and believes the gospel turns from their sin and trusts in Jesus, turns from their God of money, God of themselves, and turns to Jesus as king. Friends, that payment is applied to their account. And it's not just the forgiveness, the erasing of debt, but it's now this crediting to your account that Jesus has given you his righteousness. As Paul tells us, that what is God's, it is everything. And we have everything that God has. That Jesus forgives our account and gives us everything he has. That's the scandal of the gospel, that we do not have a selfish God. We have a sacrificial God and a selfless God. Friends, that's why we, as gospel people, we model after, we live after, and we trust in King Jesus who lives his life generously and sacrificially. And we do this in the classic way, if you've been around a Baptist church, of your time, your talent, and your treasures. That we do this and we live it with our time. We we spent an entire sermon on this last week. But I'll go back to that topic for a moment. I mean, when, when was the last time that you cleared your schedule? You canceled some event. You didn't do something you needed to because you were being generous with your time. Maybe stopping on a Sunday morning and talking to someone that maybe you really don't want to talk to or maybe you have, don't feel like you have enough time or maybe it's stopping because you see someone in need. When was the last time you were generous with your time or with your talent, meaning stuff you're good at? Skills you have, knowledge you have, maybe education or experiences you have, your talents. How can you be generous with your talents? Perhaps it's serving in the local church. Friends, we we are to be stewards of how we are generous in living out. How can you serve the local body? But as well, how can you serve those around you, your family, those in your workplace, those in your dorm, those at school? How can we be generous with our talents? But as well with our treasure, which means our stuff, and it means our money. Are you a sacrificially generous person with your treasure, with your stuff? Do you view it not as a hoarder, not closed-handed, but as a steward? Do you view it not selfishly, but sacrificially? That, God, this is yours. Because this is how we, people of the gospel, live. We live not as hoarders, but as stewards. We live not uh, selfishly, but ultimately sacrificially. But unbelievers, they, they view money in a third way as well. Verse 5, you'll see it, that they view their money, it's really a posture of their heart more so, as spenders. Check it out, verse 5. This one is perhaps the clearest one. It says, You have lived on the earth in luxury, you rich unbelievers, and in self-indulgence. 
right? It's all about just getting more and more. I just want as many things as I can. I'm all about things, right? Like Tom Haverford says, love fades away, but things, things are forever, right? That's your mantra of your life. But what does James say? He says, you fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You know, when I read this, first of all, I get a little hungry because I think about like a good juicy burger. But that's kind of the idea here, right? It's this idea of a, of a cow that's being fattened up, ultimately so it can go to the slaughter. He's using imagery of the wrath of God that ultimately, what is it that we're doing if we just live with this posture of I'm going to spin, 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 right? I just want stacks on stacks on stacks, and I'm just going to buy anything I want. This thing is going to make me feel better. I'm just going to go on that target spree, right? I got to go to the fancy Walmart, and I got to get my things, right? I need this next new thing. I got to go on that Amazon thing. It's in the middle of the night. I'm just going to rack up this big bill. This is the temptation of our culture, right? Let's just spin. Let's just spend. But he says, this is how unbelievers live. And ultimately, what are we doing if we live in this way? We're just fattening ourselves up. We're just trusting in that God, in that king money. Friends, that king, as Paul David Tripp says, it doesn't lead to anything. It doesn't lead to anything. All the promises that it whispers in your heart, you know, if you just buy another thing, if you buy that other outfit, if you buy that new device, if you buy this, it'll make you happy. It will ease that pain. But king money always lies to you, and it always lies to me. Now, again, the, the overcorrection of this is, well, I just don't want to be a spender, right? I'm just never going to spend my money. But then that kind of goes back to the first thing, right, of this, of this over-calculation uh, and this overcorrection of hoarding, too. So what is it that we are called to do? Is it, is it even wrong to have money to, to buy things? Here, James, what he's really getting at is this idea of the posture of our heart. It is the posture of your heart to spend or to give. In many ways, it's going back to that quote that we saw from Art Rayner of the question of not how much do I have to give, but rather how much do I have to keep, and then what can I give? That that's the posture of our heart. Yes, to the local church, that that is the, the primary thing that, that God, that Jesus has bled and died for. But as well, as we see others around us with our time, talent, and treasure, how can we be generous? How can we be open-handed and live generously as stewards of God's grace to be that conduit, to serve those in need? Friends, that we don't have this posture of how can I spend, but rather to give. And it's not wrong inherently to have money. Because Jesus, what does he say? Does he say that money is the root of all evil? That that's evil, that money is? No, he says the love of money. In fact, there's many people in the Old Testament and New that, yes, are described just as James does here, that they are unrighteous as they are rich. But it's not because they're rich. Because there's also people in the Old Testament, the New Testament, that have a lot of things. And they're not described as unrighteous just because of that. In fact, let me give you two examples in the New Testament specifically of two rich people, and how God used them as conduits of God's grace, God's generosity, to be able to advance the gospel. There's one guy by the name of Theophilus. You ever heard of Theophilus? It's probably like a pseudonym, like a, you know, like a, a name, maybe even to kind of hide his name. But he's the dude at the beginning of the book of Luke and the beginning of the book of Acts. Both those books are written by Luke. And Luke was paid by a guy named Theophilus to go around for months, perhaps even years, to be able to interview people. So he had to travel. He had to have food. He's probably taking these people out for a meal, those kind of things, providing things. And he's doing all this work and then actually setting aside time 
Luke was a doctor, and so he probably had to take time off from work. He's take, setting this time to then write these massive letters that we have in the New Testament, Luke and Acts. And who bankrolled that? Some rich dude named Theophilus, named God-lover, lover of God. That's what Theophilus means in Greek. And this guy, he used his money, not, sacri- not selfishly, not as a hoarder, but at, and not as, with a spending mentality, but rather of how can I be open-handed? How can I advance the gospel? How can I be generous with my money? There's some people here that God has blessed you financially. How is it that you can help advance the gospel? To view your money as not something that you can spend, but how can I view my money as something to advance the gospel message? But then there's a second person. There's a guy near the end of the New Testament by the name of Philemon. If you know your New Testament, Philemon is one of the last books in the New Testament. It's one of the smallest books in the entire Bible. It's a great book. It's a, it's a lot about forgiveness, reconciliation, even kind of deconstruction long-term of th- this horrible institution of slavery. It's a wonderful book to read and study. But there at the beginning of the book, you get these wonderful context clues of who is this dude named Philemon. Philemon is a guy who has a church in his house. And what that means is that he is a rich businessman because he has enough money to actually have a home that's large enough to host people in that time frame. What that means is he was either a pastor, he was a small group leader, something like that. But he hosted people in his home. He's living generously with what God has given him. And so perhaps that's you. Maybe God has given you a space, a home that that could open people up. We've shared with you that we're growing. We're going to have more multiplication and plant more community groups. We're going to have two to three more come in the fall. That only happens if people are generous with their homes, opening up their homes with, with uh, generous hearts, just like people like Philemon. Friends, this is how we live open-handedly and generously. But then it does leave, like, if we can just be honest, like a really practical question of if I'm not to be a hoarder, but I'm to be a steward. If I'm not to be selfish, but rather sacrificial. If I'm not to have this spender mentality and, and, and mindset, but rather a giving one, then How much do I give, and where do I give it? Like, perhaps that's a question in your head. And Paul actually answers that for us. In the book of 1 Corinthians, he says this in chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. If you've been to Starting Point, you've actually seen us walk through this briefly. Check it out with me, verse 1. He says this, Now concerning the collection for the saints, he says how people give specifically to the church, which, which the New Testament lays out is not the only thing, but the primary thing that we do give to. The thing that Jesus bled and died for. The thing that Jesus designed to advance the gospel as a whole. He says, I'm going to tell you exactly how the collection for the saints should go. Just as I directed for the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. He says, hey, I told the churches in Galatia, that city, and I'm going to tell you guys, Corinthians, the city of Corinth, I'm going to tell you guys how churches should do this. Meaning this is a universal principle. This is how churches operate. This is how we give. Verse 2, he says this, and this comes from, as you'll see at the bottom of the slide, one of my professors at Southeastern Seminary where I got my master's, he's a, uh, he's a financial ethicist, and, and he breaks down this passage in this way. That Paul says this, on the first day of every week. So how do we give? How much do we give? He begins to answer these questions. He says it's periodic. He says on the first day of every week. That it's not just when I feel like it. It's not just willy-nilly. No, it's periodic as well. That it's each of you. And this is really important. Because in Christianity, especially when it comes to how we give. How we give holistically with our time, talent, and treasure. 
oftentimes we can fall to the mindset of, well, I'm part of the church. I come on Sundays. And yeah, it's so great that, you know, we gave in this way, or you know what, people served in this way. And really to be a consumer and just to sit on the sideline. Friends, here Paul makes it clear that giving is personal. That the question is my obedience between me and Christ. It's your obedience with you and Christ. It's this, am I specifically giving? That's the question. Am I giving and being generous? Paul says that each of you, that us, all of us, is to put something aside and store it up. Meaning it's not just when you get that extra paycheck. It's not, well, I got a, I got a big check for my birthday, so I guess I'll give something. I, got, I actually got a rebate on taxes. That was great. That was unexpected. I guess I'll put a little bit into the plate or whatever it might be. But no, it's actually something planned. And it says, as he may prosper. Meaning that it's proportionate. Meaning that it's depending on that individual person. It's depending on Kristen and me and, and what we make and how we give. It's depending on you and your household. Friends, that it's proportionate. And that brings up a question of tithing. Maybe you've heard that term before, maybe not. But the word tithing it literally means 10, 10%. And in the Old Testament, you see that there was this tithe in place. And oftentimes, people say, well, it was there in the Old Testament. Jesus talks about it, so apparently that means that we tithe. But I think that's actually not the holistic view that the Bible presents. Because first of all, when you look at the Old Testament, yes, they had those tithes, but depending on the year and the time of the year, there were additional offerings. So depending on when it was, they might be giving in the upper 20% actually. And so if you want to just do that, then first of all, we need to study that more holistically and, and give in that way. But what we see in the New Testament is that Jesus, he fulfills the law. That in his death, burial, and resurrection, he fulfills that. And we as his people, we follow him. Now, not under the tithe, but now under his generous heart. How he gave, how? That he gave sacrificially. He gave completely of himself, paying our sin debt in full. And so what many would say, what, we, what, I, what I would describe towards, is that 10% really now is a starting point for us. And that we give generously, again, viewing that all of it is God's money. But it's proportionate on each person. So I've talked to some of you as college students of, hey, how much should I give because I don't really have much money? Well, friends, it's proportionate based on what you have. So whether you make $100 in a year or 100000 in a year, the question is, are you yourself doing what Paul talks about, a periodic, personal, planned, and proportionate gift? And with this last piece, so that there will be no collecting when I, when Paul returns back to Corinth, that it would be plentiful. He says that there's no needs, that it provides for everything. Friends, this is how we give. We give, yes, first and foremost, primarily to the church, but we give time, talent, and treasure to those around you. So maybe it's those in your family that have need. Maybe it is as you're driving and you see those in need. Maybe it's your doormate. Maybe it's your coworker. Maybe it's someone in your family that is in dire need. And there's a whole host of questions that come with this, of the wisdom of the best ways to do that. Of, for example, how should I serve that person that's on the corner asking for help? How should I and how is the best way to actually serve my family member who just keeps coming back for the hundredth time saying they need money? Those are good and right questions that we frankly don't have time for today, but in our community groups we'll discuss. Friends, the posture is not of should I, but rather how can I be generous? How can I mirror Christ? And not be a spender with my mentality, but rather a giver. Lastly, James tells us there's a fourth way that the unbelievers, that they view money. 
Number six, or excuse me, verse six, number four, is that they neglect the poor. He says this in verse six. He says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. And he's righteous. He doesn't resist you. Here, James is not talking uh, about literal murder. Again, he's taking you right back to the Sermon on the Mount. That's basically James' uh, whole book is just riffing off of the Sermon on the Mount. And what does Jesus tell us? That if you have anger against your heart, that you've murdered them. And so what he's telling us is this context clue that it's not just the actions what we do, but even our heart. That's why then in that time frame, in the Jewish culture, they had this mindset that if you saw someone in need, much like James talks about in James chapter 2, if you see someone in need and you don't do anything about it, that ultimately you've murdered them. You've said, hey, I see that you're in need. I see that you need something. Maybe you even asked for something and I didn't help you. I'm not going to do anything. In that culture especially, living paycheck to paycheck meant something way more drastic than it does in our culture here and now today. It meant, hey, I maybe didn't eat yesterday, and if I don't get a paycheck today, I'm not eating today. It more meant life and death. And so here, what James is talking about is that they neglected, they ignored the poor. And ultimately, in their hearts, they were condemning, they were murdering them. Friends, Jesus makes it so clear in Matthew 25. It's this famous passage about when the judgment of God does come, which this entire passage is about. Do you remember what James, excuse me, what Jesus describes in Matthew 25? He describes this scene where metaphorically there'll be sheep and there'll be goats. And they're divided. They're, they're, they're kind of split. One go this way and one go that way. And one group is righteous. They, are, uh, they go into the kingdom of God. And one group is not. They are unrighteous. They, they go into eternal judgment. And what's the thing that divides them? It's whether or not they loved the least of these. Those that were naked and poor and clothed, and they, they were in prison, they were sick, all these things, they were those in need that couldn't help themselves. He says, those are the people that ultimately, out of their heart for me, loved other people. They didn't neglect the least of these, but no, they loved them, they served them just as they would serve me. Friends, here James is saying that those that are unbelievers, they view their money and they neglect the poor. But friends, believers, we take Jesus' words very seriously, not to save ourselves, but out of what Jesus has done for us. That we use our money not to neglect the poor, but to serve the poor, to serve those around us that need help. Friends, this is why we give generously with our time, talent, and treasure, so we can be generous people that love the least of these. That we're not those that hoard and that are selfish, and that are spenders, and that neglect. But friends, but instead that we picture our generous God. Because what we've seen over these past 35, 40 minutes is who our God really is, and how we spend our money. You'll see it on the screen, that we are stewards, not hoarders. We're sacrificial, not selfish. We're givers, not spenders. We're servants, not neglectful. And why ultimately is this what it looks like for those who have faith in Christ? It's because this is who Christ is himself. That Christ was not a hoarder of his time, but his perfect steward of his time. He was here on earth as a man for only roughly 30 or so years. And how did he view his time? How did he spend his time? Viewing all of it to be on mission. Ultimately, on mission to sacrificially die in our place. 
to the point of a cross, not being selfish, but giving of his entire life for you, for me. And as well, that he would give, give entirely, give completely, give his entire life to ultimately pay our sin debt back to God the Father. And he did that for who? Us. You, me. The least of these who could do nothing to save ourselves. That's who our king is. He is a steward. He is sacrificial. He is a giver. He is a servant. We have a generous God. And if we follow not King Money, but King Jesus, friends, then we will be a generous people. This is what it looks like when James pulls, uh, pulls up the microscope and looks at our hearts. And it asks the question, who is your king? Who is it that you're following? Is it Jesus or is it your money? Is it Jesus or is it yourself? Because friends, we are called to be hearers and doers. Hearers and sayers. Hearers and givers. Friends, this is what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. So let's pray that we would be people who trust not in our money, not in our giving, but trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It's a word that we need. It's, it, it's a message that we need because we don't want to be unbalanced on our discipleship. We need to hear this word. Because that idol of money and sex and power, one of those primary idols of money is so vicious. It wants to creep up in our hearts. It wants to displace Christ as our ultimate king. Father, would we as the believers, would we be sensitive to your spirit to repent of the implicit and explicit ways that we are living as unbelievers and how we view and how we spend our money. And Father, instead that we would picture Christ in how we give. Picture Christ in how we are generous with our time, our talent, and our treasure. Father, we thank you for your generosity shown to us in Christ. May we dwell on that. May we worship Jesus for his generosity. And with someone here today, Father, would you save them and help them experience that generosity be applied to their heart today. In Jesus' name, amen.